Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down the week in media marketing is our editor, Vivian Kelly. Hello. Our senior agencies reporter, Abigail Dawson. Hello. And our senior media reporter, Zoe Samios. Hello. Plus, our guest this week is, let's call him Client Whisperer, Thought Leading Thought Leader, a uh, really good friend of Mumbrella, Darren Woolley, founder of Trinity P3. Hello. And Darren has just stepped off a flight from London, so don't worry, we've given him coffee. Darren, that went really well, didn't it? The uh, the whole delivery of coffee thing to you. I think I impressed you with my coffee making skills. I was scared you were going to blow up the Nescafe machine, or the, what's it called, the Nespresso machine. I believe it is a proper Nespresso machine, isn't it? But, wow. Was it four capsules I went through before I managed to deliver you a cup I, of coffee? I actually lost count at four, Tim. <laughs> it didn't go very well. Well, we will chat to Darren more about his illustrious career a little later. But first, let's get into the week's news. Coming up... Henry Tasia named Dentsu Aegis Network's CEO. Clems to rebrand Australia. MLA calls for a united New Zealand and Australia in summer campaign. And summer sport is past the halfway mark, so how are the TV networks faring? So first, let's get into the week's news. Big news at Dentsu Aegis, Dentsu Aegis Network this week, as Amazon's, Amazon's media boss, Henry Tager, was appointed the group CEO over at, uh, at Dan. I must have, I've still not really got used to calling them Dan rather than Dentsu or Aegis or Mitchells as they were back in the day. Um, You've been a long-time watcher of this world, Darren. What did you make of this move, the return of Henry to agency side? Well, that's what I think it is, is just Henry returning to an environment I think he feels much more comfortable in. And especially, you know, having originally been at Media Brands, going to an agency like Dan, he'd be very comfortable. Yeah. Now, what do you mean by that? You say that with a smile. (laughs) Oh, I was hoping it wouldn't come across, but... um, Look, I think uh, they are culturally very similar. I think uh, as agencies and certainly under Henry's leadership, uh, Media Brands was very much seen about driving cost and driving value for their clients. And I think uh, Dentsu Aegis Network or Dan, and you're right, they, they, I think they're almost uh, wanting people to forget that it came from Japan and Europe as a merger and Dan's the new entity. But I think that has a very similar culture. Yeah, and look, and I suppose I never fully understood what Henry was doing over at Amazon. And I might also bring you in as well, Abs, because you you, you, you wrote, wrote the story when the announcement came through. At 10.30 what, what, at night on a Sunday, yeah, yes. Yeah, what? Uh, thank you for that. What was the... Uh, that's the joy... That, that That's the highs and lows of weekend duty, isn't, isn't it? it? Sometimes you have a quiet one and sometimes you're ready to go to bed and it comes through. Now, what... um. What was he actually doing at Amazon, in your best understanding? Uh, there's sort of two ways I'd answer this question. Um, the first the first way to answer it, and that's sort of how Amazon positioned it, is that he oversaw Amazon's advertising solutions division, which was basically display advertising, search, mobile, video, out of home and programmatic. But the second way that I would answer that, and I would say is what that involves, I'm not sure that people are so clear on um it's it's you know to me a little bit similar to that chief creative role in in the likes of pwc as well i think it was uh, a bit of a gray area 
Mm. Well, what it did involve was Henry getting to go and meet all of the agency networks and potentially scope out job opportunities because he had to be really quiet whilst he was at Amazon and couldn't really talk to the public and to the media. But what kept leaking was while he was getting to know this new job, he was also meeting with everyone and then lo and behold, potentially he used it as a job hunting opportunity. Well, was it that though or was it also just a brilliant opportunity to see under the hood for everybody as well, all the agencies? Well, look, I mean, I imagine that Henry knows what goes on at agencies behind closed doors. He's not new to agency side or, or that side of the operations, but I do think it was quite astounding how so many people didn't think he would last long at the Amazon job and and they were right. Darren? Yeah, look, I think uh, Amazon in some ways is not positioned clearly in the marketplace because a lot of people are thinking, is this another digital aggregator like the Facebooks and the Googles of the world? But they have such a strong online retail e-commerce and is this a media for a retailer or is it actually a media generally to reach an audience yeah yeah it's somewhere between a a a platform or a distribution system versus a media owner itself isn't it look it's worth covering off because yeah henry is one of the global success talent success stories to come out of australia in that you know he had a big global job um you know we've seen a a few people come through on the media side matt baxter obviously still has a has a global job um within the the IPG group um, out of New York. On the creative side, I suppose we've got people like Nick Law and the digital creative side, obviously David Droger, a few like that. Henry went off having made a success of IPG media brands in Australia. He went off to do the same thing in the US. It didn't last. He was got rid of quite quickly and he came back. And most people were sort of saying that there is no job in Australia big enough for him compared to that global thing um for, for, for those who aren't sort of familiar with his his style what would you see as his as his strengths and if there are there weaknesses well i think uh, one of the underlying mistakes was the fact that because he was so successful here with media brands that there was a belief within that network that they could transplant that success into a market and the thing that you realize is that media while people like to think it's amorphous and consistent, market by market, it's dramatically different the way it it performs. So I think just trying to lift someone and and they allowed him to take a hand selection of team members, you know, uh, John Sintras went there and um, uh, Charles Godbold, and I think um, even... Travis Johnson. Yeah. So, So he took his team, but I just think that they found the scale and the culture so dramatically different that that strategy didn't work. Do you think some of it was about timing as well? In the, in Australia, he definitely rode a wave. He recreated IPG from being just about planning and buying. It became far more than that. Mm. Wider footprint, nudged into creative, nudged into branded content, all of those things. So the sort of model was changing. Um, chatted a, I, 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 I chatted a few weeks back to Danny Bass who's um, still over at IPG he was talking how media agencies have had to go through this grieving process and accept that they're just never going to be as profitable as they could be um, ever again just because the model has changed Is, do, do you think that some of what went on was he rode the wave up 
and life changed? Well, I think he rode the wave in Australia. I think um, it was also the fact that the US around that time, suddenly the transparency issue broke in the US as if it was this dramatic revelation for the industry. Um, and I also think that uh, struggled with actually adapting culturally. The one thing, and um, Hamish McClellan will tell you this, the one thing an Australian can't do in New York is tell them how it was done back in Australia. And that's the issue. Yes. Yeah, there is that thing, isn't there? I, I, I remember when I worked on Media Week in the UK, we had an Australian worked for us. And uh, for a while, her nickname in the office was Uncle Albert, after the only fools and cook only fools and horses character would always say during the war her her catchphrase was in australia so um mm. so yeah i can I, I can see how that would uh, would get there um how do you think henry will go this time well as i said before i think the cultural fit is ideal for henry i think uh uh, Denso Edges Network or Dan has a, a terrific underlying uh, infrastructure and, and set of capabilities. And I think, uh, you know, it's an opportunity for him to really reinvent that to the marketplace. Next up, we'll be talking about clams. Clemenger won a much-needed account this week with the nation's brand ending up under the stewardship of Clemenger BBDO Sydney. Abs, I'm not sure if I'm talking about Clemenger BBDO or Brand Australia. An impossible task? I mean, I think it depends, as you said, just in what context you put it in. I think the task from what I've understood is quite ambiguous. Is it a branding task that they're asking for or are they looking for sort of those more creative minds to actually create sort of a a campaign and something that's a little bit different? So in that context, I think – you know, certainly from from what I've heard and and what I've written about, I'm still not entirely sure what the task is. Uh, in terms of is it impossible for Clemenger BBDO Sydney to do? I think the answer is no. Um, I think they did a really good job on Tourism Australia's account when when they had that. Uh, and, and they were the one who sort of came up with the strategic positioning around. There's nothing like Australia, for instance. Yeah, so I think I think they did that that really well, and and I also think that you know they're in a time where they really have a lot to prove. Uh, so I, I kind of think that they're going to throw everything at this account, and you know to add to that, it, it is an account that you would want to do well in because it is sort of seen as being, you know, even though it's not worth a whole lot of money, I think it was three million. It's it's kind of seen as a sexy thing. Well, just before I bring in bring bring Darren back in and just talk about sort of industry perceptions of where Clem's Sydney are at. Uh, Viv, just to be clear, this this isn't the Tourism Australia account. This is Australia the the I think, I'm not sure B2B is well, even the right Well, that's exactly phrase, what I was going to say, that the easiest way to think about it is to think of Tourism Australia as our B2C facing brand and this sort of Austrade run tender as our B2B. So we're pitching Australia as a nation to businesses, come and invest here, come and buy our products, come and have a headquarters here. We're a serious business nation. And part of the problem that the government faces is we've got so many different perceptions and brands of Australia out there. So they want to unite those and have one cohesive brand. But it's going to be an odd balancing act because they said that they want to sort of move it away from the laid back larrikin and the cuddly animals but they also need to use this as a vehicle to promote us as a tourist destination. So it's it could not- be in conflict with our tourist 
B to C perceptions. It's also it's not a very big account, is it? Is it three million abs? Is that three right? million? Yeah, uh, and we're spending more than ten times that on commemorating the circumnavigation of Australia by Lieutenant Cook that didn't even actually happen in the first place. Well, look, let's not get too political here because I feel like we could be here all day. But you're right that $3 million to unite an entire country's business interests on a global scale just doesn't feel like a lot of money. Darren, if you were advising a client on the uh, oh, on their ambitions versus the realities of their budget, what would you say about that? Well, the first thing I have to say is I seriously thought that this was an episode of Hollow Men, <laughs> um, the ABC satire, where suddenly someone in uh, the public service or government has come up with an idea that we need to do a campaign and I worry that it's to be seen to be doing a campaign rather than actually wanting to achieve something when a budget's set at $3 million. What would you have spent? Well, it depends what you want to achieve. But if you actually wanted to consolidate all of the views of the world, you'd be talking tens or hundreds of millions of dollars and be looking at doing it over a two- to three-year period, not as a one-off campaign. So one of the things which I, I seem to have written about almost constantly or thought about constantly over the last 12 or 13 years I've been writing about advertising in Australia is Clem Sydney, the moment is coming. They're going to finally come good like their sister organisation, Clem's Melbourne. And you know, the moment never seems to quite come. Um, where, where do you think they are in the cycle now? Well, I think the first thing you have to realise is that Cleminger's Sydney suffers from having such a strong sister agency in Melbourne, which sets the benchmark. So they're always being compared to Melbourne. And then across in New Zealand, you've got Colenso, which is setting an even higher standard on an international basis. So it's really hard to be running an agency in such a tight-knit network and always being perceived as being third out of three even though that doesn't necessarily mean that Cleminger Sydney is underperforming. I mean, as a network, they hold up their own. It's just they're always third to the other two. So you wouldn't see them as underperforming? Personally, I don't think they're underperforming. I just think that they're the little brother or little sister of two other more prominent and more high-profile agencies. And Abs, now, now of course, we have uh, Sydney and Melbourne both under one leadership, Nick Garrett, who, of course, was previously at Colenso. Yeah, I, I think to me, <clears throat> Kaleminger, you know, as, as you mentioned, Darren, they've, they've never sort of had a national view on their agencies and whether that's hindered or helped them, I'm not entirely sure, but that they definitely do look at things as, you know, that's Melbourne, this is Sydney, that's New Zealand. And, uh, you know, I, I think to your point, Darren, you know, I, I sort of look at it and think why – would a would a brand buy Clem's Sydney when you could buy Clem's Melbourne? And I think that does make things really hard for Sydney because they have to live up to this this huge monstrosity of an agency that's you know one of the most awarded agencies in the world. One of the problems that they've had historically is that Cleminger ran each office as individual um, P and Ls, and that was because local team members had equity in those operations. You would have thought after the Omnicom got to a national or even a tripartite uh, arrangement of a single P&L, but I think the culture of Cleminger is much still much stronger in those offices as Omnicom than it ever you know, than um, Cleminger. And then into the mix we need to throw in CHEP, which, which used to stand for CHE Proximity, and before that Cleminger, again, Harvey Edge. 
proximity, um, both in Sydney and Melbourne, particularly strong in Melbourne. Um, so that's another really interesting part of the mix in Australia. If you were advising your clients, and you do, uh, and you can only put one on the list out of CHEP or CLEMS, BD, BBDO, which one would you which one would you put on the the list for consideration? Well, it would come down to their strategy, and if it was uh, bra- traditional brand building, I think you'd have to err on the side of uh, Cleminger BBDO. And if it was more performance marketing and and a strong media integration, then you'd definitely look at Chip. And I think another thing that I would would add to that is I do think Clemenger Sydney is really capable of producing great work. And I do, as I mentioned before, I think the Tourism Australia work that they've done has been fantastic. I just think that the struggle has been getting the clients to produce more work. Next, let's talk meat. This week saw the release of Meat and Livestock Australia's summer campaign, which sees a mid-ocean meeting between Australia and New Zealand, with New Zealand being persuaded to uh, promise to share its Prime Minister. As we all know, Australia is the greatest country on earth. But frankly, right now, New Zealand is doing Australia better than Australia. So we propose we unite to create New Australia. Names a bit stink. So some have been calling this one a return to form for the monkeys who are behind this uh, campaign, as they've been for many uh, of the recent MLA campaigns. While others claim they're a little confused about how the whole the whole concept of the adder, Viv, is MLA back and were they ever away? I think they were away in that they had a previous campaign which was a sort of West Side Story spoof which attempted to pit Australia's extreme left versus Australia's extreme right and really play off these culture wars that we're allegedly having and where everyone is ridiculous. I don't think that ad hit the mark so much because it didn't have the humour. It was trying too hard to skewer everybody and it's always difficult to do that without looking like you're favouring a certain side. This ad, look, it isn't as controversial as previous ones where they've made fun of all current white Australians being boat people and skewering us for our attitude to refugees and having a really inclusive but also controversial ad a couple of years ago where they refused to say Australia Day. This one, though, at least, less controversial, but at least it's funny. You know, I I heard some giggles from the office when people were watching it and a new layer was added each time they watched it. You'd notice some other gag. You'd notice some other sort of nuance. I think the left and right one didn't have that. It was so in your face and so obvious. So, yes, it's a return to what made this campaign and and this brand a strong one. I think the thing about this ad, and and I'm, I'm a massive fan of it, I think they've done a really good job. And to me, I watched it and I sort of felt like, yep, this seems like the old monkeys, you know, pre Accenture, pre that little hiccup they had last year with with their MLA ad. But the reason why I think it's really great is because I think it really does hit that sweet spot between having good creative 
being controversial but not pushing it too far, which they have done in the past. And it is a little bit of a sensitive time in our country at the moment. You know, there are, there are a lot of things going on. There's a lot of change happening. And I think they've navigated that really, really well. And I think it has overall been been received quite well. And, and you know, even um, earlier this week, Tourism New Zealand came out and, and responded to the ad to the proposition that there's this new Australia land, which is kind of the premise of the ad. And, uh, you know, I think for another big, big brand like that to jump on board sort of does show great success. Darren, your verdict? Look, um, I've only just seen it because I've arrived back in the country. Um, Did and you not it, have the internet in the UK? Well, it just uh, <laughs> didn't even register uh, outside of Australia and p- possibly outside of Australia and New Zealand. But uh, it reminds me of that joke that uh, New Zealand's happy to be part of Australia as long as it's called New Zealand, the national team's the All Blacks, <laughs> and uh, the um, capital city is Wellington. But uh, I think... We need to get some context here because wasn't it, didn't Andrew Howie actually leave and go to Westpac before the last one was made? Yeah. And I get the feeling that perhaps the last one with the West Side Story theme was probably also a sign of a change in leadership on the client side. As, you know, Because up to that point, they were getting progressively more... Funny, funnier but also controversial in equal measure and then we had a change and I think this is a sign of getting back to where they were uh, in a strategy. I want to say the name Graham Yardy, is that the name of the person? You're who's, right, who's Tim, it? yes. So he, um, I, I guess, now has to sit there and take the heat when something is controversial and presumably has decided that he's up for it. But, you know, I think it's a really good example of, of sticking with agency and client relationships. I think, it, you know, in in this industry there are a lot of times when, you know, things have, have gotten rough and, and Pete, there's been changes in CMOs and, you know, brands have moved agencies and agencies have moved away from brands. But I think this is actually a really good lesson in the fact that you can actually work through it and come through something, come through with something that's going to be really brilliant. You don't have to kind of end an agency relationship for a little bit of a hiccup in the road. Well, next, who won the sport? So finally for our news chat of the week, although we'll be talking more to... to Darren about his business very shortly. Um, we're, we're, we're more than halfway now, I guess, into the summer of tennis and cricket, uh, which seems like a, a good time to begin to take a few conclusions, Zoe, on, on, on where things have been faring for seven and nine, because, of course, we saw uh, seven give up the tennis and take on the cricket and vice versa with nine and ten lose all of its cricket. Um, so I guess we have to start picking a few winners. Do we really? Um, I have thought about this and I know that we've spoken about it in the office a lot this week given we have so many numbers to play with and so many decisions to make about who ended up winning in in these um, uh, sports rights changes. I think to do that there's a lot of things that come into play and that can be everything from are we looking at the TV ratings are we comparing that year on year? Are we considering where Foxtel comes into that? You've also got to think about the reputation of the sports. 
cricket had did not have a good last uh, year last year with the ball tampering scandal and also losing some of its best players. That reputation was tarnished at the same time as these rights changed. Tennis, it's always dependent from a ratings perspective on the talent, the people that are still in the game. At this point, we, we've already lost Federer. We've lost all of our Australian players and a lot of the, the people, the Australians like me, I, I choose to watch the tennis based on who I know is playing. And if there's no familiar faces anymore, well, I'm probably less inclined. So I can't really give you a definitive answer. I think Seven has a more consistent summer schedule. They have had the opportunity, even though they are down, particularly in the big bash numbers compared to when it was on Channel 10 last year. Obviously, you have to consider that Foxtel also has those rights, so those numbers will be split. But what this has allowed Seven to do is not just have that two-week spike that you get with the Australian Open, but actually have a full summer slate, even if it is down year on year. I would expect that Seven would be quite pleased because consistently, overall, their average will be up. Well, let's throw a few numbers out there then, um, because of course, you can slice it by time of day, you can slice it by demographics. So summer to date, all day seven in total people have been pretty healthy they're 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 up about nine percent year on year in total people up about and these by the way are numbers provided by seven so everybody likes to slice them in slightly different ways so it does come with that caveat um seven and 1639 which is one of the key demographics and again as i say it is in that all day uh, number not not just prime time up 16 percent in 1639 but 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 also still up 12% 12% in prime time as well. So so those messages seem to be positive. Uh, nine down slightly in total people and in those the, those demographics as well, particularly prime time, they're about standing still. Keep in, in mind the they had the Ashes last year too, which obviously would have seen a bit of a spike for them, I would Absolutely. expect. Absolutely, yes. Um, but the one where it's sort of indisputable as being – quite badly down is 10 mm. like they've really lost out by not having big bash they have and while a lot of people that i've spoken to despite being on leave again uh have said that it was great strategy for 10 to to put i'm a celebrity get me out of here on two weeks earlier that was inevitably a no no-brainer because they didn't really have much else to put on those numbers actually haven't been that bad for them. But when you think about it, and I, I've written TV ratings in January for years now, I could remember struggling to find a better story than 10 wins a night because of Big Bash, 10 wins a night because of Big Bash. This year, you're looking at 10 share falling to as low as I think 12 or 11% on, on some nights. The Big Bash, not not that's not to say that that's doing exceptionally well either. You're seeing the, the tennis, especially this week, dominate. But you can definitely see that there has been a severe impact on 10. Um, but I wouldn't say that, that that has necessarily translated directly across to 7 as a result. So quick calculation that, that you and I were just, just, just doing mm-hmm. before we came in here. So it was in actual viewing numbers across broadcast free-to-air TV, it feels like a bunch of people have gone somewhere else that's not any of the networks. Like maybe we might be down as far as, I think we worked it out briefly, as about 11%. Which is a, a big drop year on year. And at first I remember saying to you, oh, well, maybe that's because of the kinds of sports codes. But no, because as we saw before, seven seven's actually up 
um, year on year. So it's, it can't be that. I'd say that, and it's something that the TV networks have spoken to us a lot about. The audience is moving and changing. They're obviously massively push, massively pushing their uh, broadcast video on demand services at the moment. I'm not sure. Obviously, these numbers don't account for that, whether they're seeing a big increase there, whether people are watching Netflix or whether people are just outside doing something else. Because quite honestly, I, I've not watched a lot of television this summer and I don't know if it would be an 11% drop for me year on year in my consumption, but it does feel as though people are just not as interested. And the back end uh, slate, you know, when you had stuff, I, 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 I can't remember, I think we had – Family Food Fight on 9 and on 10 we had a couple of shows like Game of Games. No one was watching them then, so it kind of felt like the audience tipped off a lot earlier anyway. But what I would say about these numbers is that it is showing that potentially the the rhetoric that the networks have had around digital rights is actually quite important because if the audience – are not watching according, which is what the figures suggest. You'd want to be looking at where they might be, and digital seems to be a place that they should be looking. Well, speaking of digital rights, we will come back to that, and I'm going to bring in Josie in a minute to talk about Bandersnatch. Viv, your thoughts? Look, I think the biggest loser here has to be 10 because what they spruiked when they lost the cricket was it doesn't matter. We are going to have a full 50-week entertainment schedule with local content, with strong content. We don't need sport. People who want sport can go to 7, can go to 9, can go to Foxtel. We don't need it. They said they'd take two weeks over Christmas and then they would act like the remaining 50 weeks of the year with a full-on ratings period. They've had ratings dip even lower than Zoe gave them credit for. They've gone down to single digits on many, many nights in terms of audience share. They've been beaten by the ABC on audience share and network share many, many times. Now that they have I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, they're sort of out of the doldrums, but... They didn't program a strong entertainment schedule. So even with these numbers being down, 10 has really, really struggled. And people who aren't watching sport and those people who've gone missing from last year are not switching over to 10 for that alternative. Well, speaking of people going elsewhere, one one of those other places is streaming. And when I think of streaming, I think of our deputy editor, Josie Tutty, who has been sitting quietly working the buttons. But um, for, for whatever reason, I always seem to end up chatting to you about Netflix, Josie. One of the things that, that struck me about this year was I, I, I always sort of thought to myself, well, one of the, the, the hard things about streaming services is it's a bit harder to have those water cooler moments when people aren't all watching the same thing at the same time. Except it felt in our office this week, everyone was talking about, did you see that documentary about the fire Festival? Yeah, it definitely feels like, I mean, people aren't watching at the exact same time, but it it's, it is a lot more social. Like I've seen the fire Festival documentary talked about on all of my social channels. I've seen Bandersnatch talked about everywhere. It, it's almost like Netflix has replaced that water cooler moment because I feel like a lot of people are watching Netflix things and maybe a lot fewer watching live tv so the fire festival was the one it was it, it, it was the kind of the the brilliant post-mortem of the disastrous festival that was kind of shallowly promoted by influencers and then bandersnatch was the episode of black mirror where you could press press your buttons at various moments and steer the audience in different directions for what they were viewing yeah and i think bandersnatch has really been exciting the media and marketing community because of that choice aspect of it it's almost like it is a you know you can collect so much data on the people that are watching that it's not just they're watching it and for how long but actually what 
storyline are they choosing and there's one moment in it where you choose between i think it's frosties and cocoa pops or something like that you you basically choose what cereal you want and then later on in the story there's an advert that pops up on the tv in the background for the for the cereal that you've chosen now that presents such good branding opportunities and if if that sort of style of programming can continue elsewhere i think there's just so many opportunities for brands there now darren we'll chat more about it in a moment but one of the things that uh, struck me when i was flicking through the top 50 marketing and management posts of 2018 book which uh thank you for the christmas present which was waiting for me on my desk when i got back to work this week you're welcome well um it's uh it, it goes with my collection of what year did you start? 2012, would it have been? 13. 2013. So it's, it will join the others on the shelf. Now, now one of the para, one of the, um, the, the, the chapters that you wrote was asking that question of, is TV still the answer? And uh, how, to, how, how to make the most of that media negotiation. What is your advice to clients? Should they still be spending money on television? So look, uh, television's probably still the number one way of raising awareness across a very broad audience. And in fact, a lot of the media agencies that are using data to inform their channel selection are still finding that television is a core part of that investment. And I think that, uh, you know, and whether it's Mark Ritson or any other person that champions it, the fact is that television still holds up. The issue is how do you then use television with your other media to get the best results? Now, speaking of Ritson, it's it would probably just good to get your perspective on one other, which I know that has been previously talked about on, on the Umbrella cast in recent weeks. The uh, Gillette ad um, sort of challenging kind of traditional views of masculinity. Uh, one of the arguments Mark Ritson has made... I, I guess I almost want to say notoriously in recent weeks is, is that this idea of brand purpose is a slightly bogus idea and the brands should just concentrate on telling people about, I'm simplifying the argument, but yeah. concentrate on telling people about what a great product they've got and stick with that. Where, where do you come down on that? I think uh, brand purpose works well when it's also aligned to the organisational purpose. I think the danger is where there's one organisation with multiple brands that you could end up with multiple purpose and then behind the scenes the organisation not support it. And people are incredibly cynical and social media makes it incredibly transparent that if you end up with a brand saying one thing but then the organisation behind that brand performing totally separately the cynical bell goes off and people walk away. Now, Viv, you addressed this one in Best of the Week last week. I did, and I couldn't work out where I fell with this ad. I like the idea of it. I like the idea of a brand that so previously pushed the masculine thing, you know, man, man is strong, ma, shaving, has sort of gone, all right, maybe, maybe we need to be a bit more nuanced. Maybe we need to look out at the sorts of behaviours, not that we're responsible for, but that we could be fueling with the culture that we're pushing. But the ad was so hammy and so overdone. In my view, it was so obvious. There was no subtlety to it. It was like, here is a man mansplaining. Here are some boys being bullies. There was no clever transition. And if you're going to go down that path and you're going to upset the men's rights activists and you're going to rile people the wrong way, at least really stick with it. You know, I needed a moment of shock. I needed a moment of controversy. Now all you've got is this really lame ad and people flushing their razors down the toilet 
and all this discussion about whether or not it's going to hurt sales. And I don't think they've taken a proper stand on the issue. And I, uh, to, to add to that, you know, I think one of one of the mistakes that they made is this sort of just came out of nowhere and I think probably blindsided a lot of its customers and, and the general public. And I think, you know, people talk about bandwagoning a lot when you sort of jump on a bandwagon as a brand to, to stand for something. But there was no real groundwork put in before this ad. And I think that's where the problem lies. They just sort of came out and said this thing that was a bit flippant. And, and you know, there was there was no building up to that moment. No, you know, hey, we support um, this charity or this organization or this is what we're about. They just kind of came out and said this thing and everyone went, what? And I think uh, I think that was the problem for me there. The other problem strategically is if you're going to polarise an audience, make sure that you end up with all of your core customers actually supporting you and all of the people that are not your core customers hating you. Because polarisation could work really well to galvanise an audience. I think here they've ended up right in the middle of their own audience, splitting it 50-50 because of the ham-fisted approach to it. Not to mention that they still, as a brand, charge women more for raises than men. So if you're going to come out and be all like, hey, let's have equality, let's stand up for women, let's have equality in the backyard and whatever, then we need it in the bathroom as well where for the exact same product you pink wash it and women have to pay 20% more. Yeah, why is that? Uh, you'd have to ask the folk <laughs> Add at some extra sense <laughs> to it, apparently. So, Darren, I'm going to cover off a, a couple of other chapters of, of, of this year's book, as I have you. Um, firstly, for, for those unfamiliar with Trinity P3, I, I think if I, and as a journalist, I can only really hold one idea in my head at any one time. So if I had to describe you, it would be helping match make clients to agencies and i know you're going to tell me that's a really unsophisticated take on what you actually do uh but um I, let me ask you this you've you one of the things you've written in the book is what do you do if you're a brand and agencies just don't want to uh, respond to your pitch because you have such a bad reputation as a client and look we wrote that because it's actually happening you know, there are brands, you know, especially in categories like telco, even some financial services brands who have gone through a number of high profile agencies. They've run really poor uh, pitch or processes. Well, I guess this is all matter of public record. So let's name some names. Oh, well, uh, Vodafone had a real problem, you know, and they were inclined to go with an independent agency and then end up with a WPP agency and then go back and forwards. And it, you know, it burns people out. Agencies start questioning whether no matter what the size of the prize is this a company that we should go through all of this effort to win a piece of business that two to three years down the track we could be thrown out on our ear and that's incredibly financially damaging but also reputationally damaging and also presumably for the agencies they actually don't say to the clients sorry actually we're not going to pitch because you've got a terrible reputation they say something a bit more polite than that they come up with a polite excuse presumably usually oh we're really busy at the moment we don't have the resources to give it our best chance or you know they will find some other way of saying it but uh, especially as a uh, matchmaking consultant, you know, we will often go have those conversations to really get to the bottom of it. Because if the client wants a particular agency to participate, we will have discussions around, well, what would it take? And the bottom line is, we just don't want that client. 
And it's, it's interesting because uh, you know, when I'm interviewing agency CEOs across the board, whether that be PR media or creative or anything that sits in between there is, and it's a question I often ask, how do you know what, what pieces of business to pitch for? And, and one agency boss kind of really summed it up for me. And he said, you know, it's, it's got to be three things. It's got to be fame, fortune and fun. And that sort of has to fit in at least two of those categories. So I think, you know, as a brand, that's, it's a good way of thinking about it and, and, for an agency as well, they want to partner with someone that's going to make them famous, that's going to be a fun brand, and that's going to give them money. Yeah, I'd say the third one is probably the most important because agencies are struggling to actually make decent profits. So you'd, I would say to agencies, make sure the the, the the funds are there, the opportunity to actually make money. Don't take it on board like you used to because other clients are not going to subsidise you for being famous on someone else's work. But I think, uh, and I, I do agree with you, but but I also think having the opportunity to create great work and have great work on your portfolio is really beneficial for some agencies. And, you know, while, of course, the funds are important, I think for other agencies that's also really important to have the ability to do great work, to put on your track record to get better clients. And this is what worries me is that they are not running a business. I mean, a business that's willing to go and get a piece of business to make them famous, even though they could be running at a loss, is not running a business. I mean, this is exactly why they have such struggles to maintain and pay their staff, to not work their staff, you know, more than 60 or 70 hours a week. You know, it is a business and at the bottom line, it has to make a profit. So let's let's sort of bring you in. You way way back in the day, you were a creative. I think JWT, if I remember rightly, if you were running an agency based on your ethos as you see how to run an agency, and you had to look around the market now, which agency do you think does it the closest to how you would do it? Well, on the network side, because I, I do differentiate between independent agencies and network agencies. And I think that network agencies often suffer from being told this is your KPIs. And so local management have less say in what they can and can't do because they have to meet those KPIs. Having said that, I think networks like uh, Havas and Omnicom are more inclined to allow local management to make the decisions that are best for the office, not just what's best for the regional or global business. And if you were to run an agency, would it be successful? Uh, Look, if I was going to run an agency, I'd be running an agency. The fact that I'm not running an agency means that I probably wouldn't be successful because I just don't want to do it. Do Do you think that there is something to be said as a career decision in starting an agency? We get a lot of people leaving or being made redundant from uh, very high-profile jobs and they'll phone me up and they'll say, I've got this idea, I'm going to set up an agency. And I go, have you got a better idea? Because <laughs> you know, there's one thing, and I think Mark Buckman said it a few years ago, there are just too many agencies. And the problem is that they don't really differentiate themselves. If you're just setting up another agency, don't do it. But if you actually have an idea that is going to fulfil a part of the market that's currently not being filled, then absolutely go for it. Let's talk about industry bodies. So you had a, a, a brief period chairing the AMI, the uh, Australian Marketing Institute. Um, you also went on the record with um, uh, raising some, I think, really important and valid questions about how the AANA, the Australian Association of National Advertisers, is funded and whether because 
except some funding from media agencies, there's a compromise there. What do you think generally the state of the Australian marketing industry is when we look at it through the lenses of their industry bodies? Well, I've also uh, said at a Mumbrella 360, I think two years ago, that uh, there are way too many industry bodies. And for as the well. record, I think you have spoken more at Mumbrella events than any other single individual over the last <laughs> 10 years. Well, um, that must be because whoever's curating it uh, keeps asking you thinks I have something worthy to say. Um, I think the problem is that uh, the industry here is relatively small compared to a lot of other markets. And we seem to have an inordinate amount of organisations, whether all of them actually have a legitimate or fundamental reason for existing um, is the question I think everyone should be asking. I mean, the easiest thing in the world is to set up another industry body, but do you have enough support? And you would have the support if you're fulfilling a need that doesn't currently exist. You briefly chaired the Australian Marketing Institute. Um, what, When you stepped up, what did you see that purpose as being? Well, the Australian Marketing Institute offered the opportunity to be elected to the board, so I was elected to the board. And the reason I stood was because I think there is a fundamental need in this market, as in many markets, to champion the value and role of marketing. And why didn't you stay? Uh, there was challenges uh, that I was confronted with uh, that we addressed, but after 12 months uh, I didn't feel that I had any further uh, ability to uh, to actually take that forward. That sounds like a very diplomatic answer. But it was more detail than we got from Ben Sharp when we asked him why he left ADMA after two weeks. So, you know, props to Darren for actually giving us something to work with. <laughs> which, um, which industry bodies do you think are doing a good job, if any? Uh, I think the uh, the ANA has got a renewed focus. Uh, John Broom is the CEO, and also uh, Matt Tappers announced that he's stepping aside. So he was the chairman, the chairman, and they've also merged the board between the Advertising Standards Board and the ANA board. So you're seeing changes there that I think is giving a renewed focus. I think Admar, even though they've you know there were some wobbles, I think that's incredibly valuable around the training and capabilities, which is an important part of it. Um, beyond that, you've then got a whole lot of you know other organisations, but you'd have to question you know the idea of what's the role of the IAB, and then you've got all of the other media owners have got their own. Um, why do we need so many media owners being represented by their own organisations? Well, I think time is about to beat us. Um, very briefly, if you had to, in one or two lines, make a big prediction for the coming year, what's it going to be the year of? Um, I think 2019 will see increased consolidation in agencies. And I also think that we'll start to see a clearer view of where uh, the consultants are going to fit into that landscape. Darren, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for supporting the Mumbrella cast. If you haven't had a chance yet, then we'd love it if you could rate it or even write a review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. If you like it, I suggest that five stars is appropriate. That's all for this week. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Thanks Tim. Toodle pick.